Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Further Explanation, the Taylor Swift podcast. There may be no further explanation by Taylor, but there will be from us. I am your co-host, Callie. And I'm Kaya. And we are the Swifty Sisters. For anyone who doesn't know, Kaya and I are sisters, and <laughs> we have been Taylor Swift fans since the very beginning, the early debut era days. So we have a lot of context a lot of backstory, a lot of lived experience when we talk about Taylor and her music and her albums. And Kaya and I are also best friends and we've bonded over Taylor's music. And I think that's a contributing factor to why we are so close and why we have always been so close. We just, we love to do this. So I'm really glad that you guys are here listening to this episode. For the first time on the podcast, we are diving into an album that is not Speak Now or Midnight's, (laughs) which is kind of crazy. (laughs) We are here to discuss the older sister, or the the younger sister of album Evermore. I think it's would be the older sister, but Evermore feels more spiritually like an older sister. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but if we're going by like release being like a birth, birth. of an album, <laughs> then Folklore is the older sister. But if we're going by how old Taylor was when she made it, Folklore is the mm. younger sister. <laughs> mm. lots of sides to this (laughs) so you and i are sisters these are the sister albums are you Mm -hmm. folklore or are you evermore and am i folklore or am i evermore see i don't know because i think evermore is both our favorites so Mm -hmm. can't really it's hard because i love them both in like an equal way like Mm -hmm. i have the same love for both of them Mm -hmm. but I do have just like a personal preference to Evermore. And I think that might also be because it's a winter album. Mm. But it yeah. also just depends. And it also depends on what season it is, like which one I'm going to listen to. Because mm-hmm. I can't really listen to Evermore. Like, I can't in the listen summer. to Evermore right now. No, no. I'm, I'm in folklore mood right now. <laughs> Absolutely. It was raining yesterday, and I put my folklore vinyl on, and I was listening mm-hmm. and like taking notes for this episode. Yeah. We are discussing folklore, the indie record that's much cooler than mine. And there is much to say, people of the podcast and fellow Swifties, there's much to say. This was the first surprise drop ever. This is one of those, you remember where you were. Mm-hmm. Kaya, do you remember where you were? I think you were asleep. I was asleep. <laughs> and I and texted I you. And I woke up in bed and I found out through a Taylor Nation email. Because <laughs> I checked my emails before I got on social media. <laughs> I remember sitting on the couch that morning and I... I think I got a notification that she posted to Instagram and I was like, what? And I went and it was that first grid. Like, you know, she did like the nine square thing. Mm-hmm. And it was that first one. And I was like, oh my God, oh my God. And I just sat there like refreshing her page and watching the cover of Folklore form. And I was just lo- losing my mind. And it's crazy because I was actually going to visit you the next day mm. When she dropped this, and I was like, well, I guess I'll just leave now. So we can just, like, <laughs> leave. listen. Drop everything Thing now. <laughs> yeah, literally. So we're going to talk about how Folklore felt like a natural progression for Taylor that had been missing from her discography, kind of because of that shift to pop that she made. Mm-hmm. What the concept of Folklore means, how it's reflected in the album, and how Taylor was able to channel her feelings and experiences into stories that weren't literally about her but were things that maybe reflected emotions that she had felt 
This album feels really personal to me because this idea of folklore, and when I say to me, I also mean to Kaya. It feels really personal for us, I think, because folklore being these stories told and passed down through generations is very close to Appalachian storytelling that Kaya and I grew up with. Mm-hmm. And so there, there is something about, I would say folklore more so than evermore that makes me feel this way. Mm-hmm. That is just very, I don't know, it feels very homey to me. Mm-hmm. Evermore has more of like a Western feeling. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And folklore is more Appalachian. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of cool to think about. <laughs> That's a good distinction. I like that. <laughs> so let's get into this. So the first thing that we really have to touch on in this album is that she wrote folklore in quarantine on tour, which she talks about it. She's like, I wrote, I started writing folklore like two days into lockdown. But then she's like, I was watching hours of TV. And it's like, how did you have time to watch hours and hours of TV if you started writing this album <laughs> two days into the pandemic? Yeah. Not adding up, Taylor. But in the Long Pond Studio sessions, which we will reference a lot in this episode, because that's like kind of the only anything we Source have of we Taylor look at. talking about these songs. Um, Taylor mentioned how the opening line of the one kind of has a double meaning, both in updating your former lover on what your life is like now and trying to be positive about it and also putting out an album at the worst time to do so and making music (laughs) with someone she's always wanted to work with. Mm -hmm. And that is sort of the catch for the entire album. While it's not about her directly, Mm -hmm. it is still about her. Yeah. Yeah. She puts a veil over it about it's about fictional characters and don't don't try to relate it to my life. But then deep down, almost everything about this album mm-hmm. comes from her own life. <laughs> and I think that that is something that makes this album almost more compelling than some of her more upfront diaristic albums is like, because it's not obviously immediately about her, I think it's easier for people to relate these songs to their lives and to relate them to other things, mm-hmm. which I really need Taylor Swift fans to get better at doing that, yeah. especially the newer ones, I feel like, because they mm-hmm. um, so much of what they talk about is the lore of everything mm-hmm. for like TikToks, and that's kind of what people watch, <laughs> which I get it. But there's a lot more to it that you're missing out on. The best part is being able to, I mean, probably the best part as an artist and the best part as a listener is being able to take something and make something new out of it based on your own experiences. And it can be about anything, really. That's the beauty of art, is that what it's really about doesn't really matter because mm-hmm. <laughs> it's more about how what you take from it and what you make from it. Yeah, exactly. And the fact that what you take from it can evolve and change as you experience mm-hmm. Yep. more life with that song or with whatever that piece of art is. Yep. Um, Jack then says something just like that when they're talking about the last great American dynasty. And he says, it's not about you, but it's all about you. <laughs> and I, I love that he said that. And I love the way he said that too. <laughs> but it really was like it was Taylor projecting her real feelings onto these fictional characters that made the songs on this album that much easier to relate to our own lives and experiences because it wasn't overtly here's an album that I wrote about the feelings I'm having in lockdown, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, and she and oftentimes she uses that as kind of like a marketing technique because she knows everyone's going to tune in to see what's the next chapter in her celebrity life and what's she writing about next. Mm-hmm. But she kind of abandoned that directly and was like, I don't even want that to be on your minds when you're listening to this, which I really liked. That's something that Kaya and I talk about a lot, just 
in our general conversations that we have about Taylor, but also on the podcast, is how when we talk about why Speak Now is so great and special as a Taylor album, it's because that was like kind of the last time that she wrote an entire album really without filtering in what the perception of her diaristic confessional songwriting would be. Yeah, because Red was the shift, definitely. Yeah, Red was kind of a mixed bag of it. And then the rest of it on was that full 180 switch. Yeah, because the lead single to Red was very, from a certain point of view, it could be seen as just very... um, exactly what how she feels and exactly what she's saying but it was very kind of starting to be self-aware and a little meta and a little like self-referential which once you start being that way you lose some of the purity that came before like with speak now Mm -hmm. for taylor there was more self-awareness of taylor swift the the star the pop star Mm -hmm. the brand (laughs) yeah while making her music and while marketing her music and i think that's part of what makes folklore so special is it it did kind of feel like she she could do away with all of that because Mm -hmm. she was writing under this guise of in a sincere way this is fictional Mm -hmm. this isn't about my life but of Mm -hmm. course taylor has said before like i can't write about something if i haven't experienced it she can write about things that she hasn't experienced but she pulls from her own experiences Mm -hmm. to relate to whatever this made-up thing is or this thing that she's looking at from a distance Folklore coming after Lover is very fascinating, and I think it's really (laughs) funny. (laughs) It's really funny that we're doing Folklore and Lover album breakdowns kind of like back-to-back here on the podcast, because Folklore is so different from Lover, and Kai and I have pretty strong, not super positive uh, opinions. I've had bad experiences with the album Lover. (laughs) (laughs) Which I guess is also true. It's insane that she went from putting out her weakest album she's ever made then to putting out her best album to that date (laughs) within not not even a year of each other. And I think it really does show, like the contrast of these two albums, it shows how forced Lover was compared to her most sincere efforts on folklore to writing good songs i don't know what she (laughs) what was she thinking (laughs) in the miss americana documentary taylor says that lover was like this is like my last chance to really grapple onto that kind of success and she really was trying to will another 1989 pop era for herself but it, it wasn't sincere. Lover was Taylor gripping too tightly onto pop success and trying to fit herself into something a bit more two-dimensional. Folklore was Taylor returning to her most innate need for songwriting as a coping mechanism. It felt like the album that could have come after Red in an alternative reality where album of the year <laughs> loss didn't propel her forward with mm-hmm. a hunger for success that never peaks mm-hmm. for, you know, that never satisfied uh, He's desire insatiable. that is in her deeply now and i don't <laughs> think if that's ever going to be undone no that changed something her. broke in her that day <laughs> yes it did <laughs> something the speak now era like it was so good and wonderful and then something in between speak now and red there was a big shift and then the album of the year lost just sent her down a path that she will never return from <laughs> But it's crazy. We got after that. We got three pop albums of varying quality, <laughs> arguably, 
And yeah, Lover was just like a cry for help, honestly. <laughs> and you know, we will we'll go into Lover in our album breakdown, but it is very one-dimensional. And I think it's funny when people compare Lover to Red, because I do not see that. They're both at messy. All. But one's messy in a good way. One's, and one's messy, messy with messy with purpose. <laughs> <laughs> you said that with your whole chest. <laughs> one's messy. <laughs> oh my god! Yeah, we, we love our singles are coming out. We were like, um, what are you doing? <laughs> this is a new era. This is a new experience for us having to like, kind of like force ourselves to like the songs that she's releasing. It really was, and I I don't want to get too much into Lover, but yeah. it's it's nice context to have yeah. for what the experience of getting folklore was yeah. because for the first time in mine and Kaya's little Swifty sister lives, we were like uh, looking at each other kind of nervous. It was like we were in a play and we were on stage <laughs> and suddenly the storyline flipped and we were like, I don't know any of the words, but the show has to go on. So I'm going to just play along here. <laughs> oh my God. Is how it felt. All we've ever known is being Swifties. So when she started to make a lover album, we Swifties didn't know what to do. <laughs> uh, I mean, look, okay, we'll, we'll and we'll get more into Lover, but we were very pleasantly surprised when Folklore came out. Now, when she announced Folklore, I was a little worried. I was like, this could either be really, really good, or based on what happened last time, really not so good. Well, did you did you think that? Though, kind of after you saw the images that she had with it, and after you saw like the track list too, like was that I still something being, you like, felt hopeful but still wary? Because I, you never know. At that point, I was like, all bets are off. Now <laughs> she could literally do anything, and but I had a better feeling because I was like, okay, she's clearly trying to go the opposite direction that Lover was in, so that's a good sign. <laughs> That's but I was just kind of like, and then when I saw alternative, I was like, okay, I trust mm. it, because she's done safe and sound, which is an alternative type song. Those are her best songs in my opinion, and they have some alternative musical influences. So I was, that's when I was like, okay, it's gonna be good. I'm, I'm confident. But before that, I was like, I mean, you never know, you never know. Because I feel like we got all that information just in like a day, of like but it was the a cover, day of a roller coaster, of the track list, <laughs> and then we got the genre like kind of last. And we were like, wait, is this really really the genre? Like, don't tease me with this because- Because so many times we'd be like, oh my God, Lover's going to be an 80s rock glam album. I, I literally thought that based on the promo. So I was teasing myself every era, basically. And then it comes out, it's just like- Lover was the <laughs> biggest gotcha reveal because yeah. like based on the images that she'd given us at the time, like I really thought I was going to get- I thought we were going to get like a 60s style pop yeah, yeah. era- but anyway, I, I mean, there were so many things she could have done and that it was like what it was was crazy. <laughs> kind of like Midnight's, honestly, because she totally put mm. us in the wrong direction. And then what we got was just like, oh, it didn't have anything that because we were like all oh, the Tumblr aesthetic looking album cover. It's going to be like alternative rock. It's going to be 70s, which is obviously the whole theme of the album. And then it was this like very specific like synth pop. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, yeah, she does that a lot. It's interesting. Something that I think is really interesting about folklore is that this is something Kaya, you and I have talked about is now that some time has passed from being so deep in the pandemic and using this album as like a like the piano in the cardigan video, like Literally. this album being that for everyone and for mm -hmm. us. 
kind of being able to like make new memories with folklore and associate it with different things that aren't so bleak yeah. and yeah. depressing. That's a very big point of what I want to talk about on this episode because it was so like for basically since this summer, it's been hard for me to listen to folklore because it just takes me back and I have such, it just reminded me of the negative memories and of like all the all the trauma that the album brought up and like it brought up all the stuff we were going through or and the folklore was a soundtrack to that so it's hard to go back and listen to it and then this summer i started to kind of remember the more positive memories for a change like when i went to the drive-in with my friends or when i was like just like little things that or like that walk that we took around the house mm-hmm. and i can i can, it's like i'm letting myself feel those feelings again and like revisit that time again after I'm like have been removed from it for so long, I'm like ready to kind of go back because I'm constantly like going back through my memories and like trying to piece together my life. And so I feel like now I'm at a place where I can do that again. And it was my favorite album. As soon as this album came out, it was instantly my favorite Taylor album because it was just that impressive. We listened to this album together. And that's something that we hadn't done in a while with Taylor albums because I had been at college and it was just hard to do. Mm-hmm. When we played Cardigan, this is what I wrote down. You said Are we going through it right now? No, I just wanted to <laughs> I just wanted to say this because you kind of said that just now. Oh, okay. You said, This is her best album. And I said, I've never loved a Taylor Swift album. Da, 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 da. Like I've never <laughs> I've never loved a Taylor Swift album. Like I love this. Yeah, yeah. It's just so unique. And I think that that's something not just you and I have thought of, but like how will folklore feel out of the pandemic? We put something on our Instagram stories just asking for you guys to share your thoughts on folklore and share any opinions that you had. Someone responded and said they really felt like folklore might associate too much with, you know, the pandemic in 2020 and everything, but they're I able to make new memories. And, and it's interesting that it's an album created at a low point that had a place before and after that low point. Like the pandemic mm-hmm. was more so the environment that facilitated such an album to be created by Taylor rather than the event that inspired it. And it's a small distinction, but I think it's an important one and it's very compelling to think about. And I think we're all still processing that year and the year after it and like that whole time period. For a lot of people, it brought really hardships. It brought some trauma. So, And it, for a lot of people, it was just they experienced their lives differently than they ever had before. This album goes hand in hand with that because the more the time goes on, the more you're able to process that that whole time period and the album as well. Rob Sheffield of Rolling Stone in his review for Folklore said, it sounds like she figured she wasn't going to be touring these songs live anyway. So she gave up on doing anything for the radio, anything raw, raw, or stadium friendly. She just made some coffee, sat at the piano, and let her mind wander into some dark places. You can picture the candle on her piano flickering as the wax melts over her copy of Wuthering Heights and another song rolls out. So good. So beautifully written. Thank you, Rob. Mm -hmm. I think that is what you and I are talking about right now with she was able to make something stripped away from, okay, this has to be the stadium show song and this needs to be the ballad moment and this needs to be the track five. And, you know, she didn't have her checklist. She was just creating an album and it wasn't necessarily that I'm in a pandemic and I need to write about how I feel in this pandemic. I think it was just because she was in a pandemic and because she had to cancel Loverfest and because she... She had to sit still. She was able to 
just be inspired and write from her inspiration. Which is what music and art should be. Mm -hmm. She'd been so caught up. She didn't even realize how caught up in stupidities that she was. <laughs> she didn't realize how caught up you were, Dylan. <laughs> she didn't. She was just diving headfirst into it. She's like, oh, I need success. I need to conquer the world. Headfirst, and... fearful. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> yes. <laughs> she needed this so much. And it's unfortunate that it's turned into what it's turned into just because I feel like she's so out of control right now. <laughs> Mm. And she's so entirely just humongous <laughs> that I, we've never experienced this type of popularity for Taylor for any artist ever. And it's terrifying and it's not good probably for down the line. We'll see how that's going to end up. <laughs> but this album started from a very pure place and as mm -hmm. did Evermore. And no matter what it, it kind of led to in the fandom, that will always be true. And I almost think, Kaya, that it... If it weren't for, like, Red Taylor's, if it weren't for the re-recordings, I don't know if what happened with Folklore and Evermore on a wider scale would have been sustainable. Like, I don't know if that craze that we're seeing and experiencing right now would still be going on. I feel like it would have kind of died with the end of lockdown or kind of just faded out naturally. Maybe with Red, because Fearless didn't do that. She already had a lot more fans than she ever had before, so it was already different. Folklore gave her... I mean, Folklore did give her a lot of critical reception I, she never I had agree. before. And a lot of people who were like, oh, you know, maybe I like to... <laughs> you know? <laughs> so that was definitely a huge turning point. And then Fearless kind of wasn't, and then Red was a big one. And then Midnight's. I mean, everyone was awaiting the big pop comeback for Taylor. That mm -hmm. was going to, even if she had done that right after Evermore and not even done any re-recordings, that would have been highly anticipated. It's just so interesting how there were a lot of, like, people who became fans during Folklore and Evermore who were not happy about Midnight's, at least at the beginning. I, I don't know where those people went. I don't know if they're still around. I don't they're know They're probably they're... going to the tour. <laughs> but I remember for us, when we listened to Folklore for the first time, it was such a relief to hear Taylor singing against live instruments again mm -hmm. and less just like synth production and actually hear a guitar. <laughs> I don't feel like I really realized how much I missed hearing live instruments on a Taylor album until I had live instruments on a Taylor album again. Mm -hmm. Like I, I know that I missed it, but once I had it, I was like, oh damn, I was really starved for this. Yeah. And just the cinematic nature of the music mm. is what I really miss the most. Because we have that a lot on Speak Now. Speak Now and Red are the most cinematic albums, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. um, and then Folklore came and was like, let's let's revisit that. Because mm -hmm. <laughs> that was really powerful and made some really important and emotional songs. I love big, big orchestras and like those types of things. I do need to address, I've said this so many times probably, that... The instrumentation of folklore is very specific, and mm -hmm. it's not my favorite because it's very light and airy, and it's very sparse. Yeah, it's very specific. It's like a, it feels like modern indie music because mm -hmm. modern indie music is not as in, as um, in your face and extreme as orchestra <laughs> speak now kind of music. That's mm -hmm. all the whole point. It's supposed to be like, oh, I'm an indie girl, and I'm like, oh, soft, you know. <laughs> and um, so I hope. I, I I mean, I guess we can speak now Taylor's version, and that's what that'll be. And I don't know if she's going to redo that again. I've talked about that a lot in all kinds of different episodes. Mm -hmm. But yeah, so it's not my ideal instrumentation, but it is absolutely beautiful in its own way. 
And it's very specific to Folklore Nevermore. All of that to say that, yeah, Kaya and I definitely prefer like a bigger sounding instrumentation, but it got to start somewhere. And maybe this was what she needed to like ease herself into it. Maybe this, this was the first step to her being able to make a bigger sounding record again. At some and point. it makes sense because like it was COVID and like mm-hmm. she wasn't going to get a big ass orchestra. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And also like that's kind of, it feels kind of metaphorical to how we were all feeling, you know? Yeah. It wasn't the just big, huge, raging emotions. It was more of like the ooh, quiet numbness. <laughs> yeah. It, yeah. It was the instrumentation was perfect for this album, but mm-hmm. just opinion wise and like what we prefer, it's not exactly up our alley, but mm-hmm. it was definitely nice to hear that again. In the Long Pond Studio sessions, Taylor said that she didn't tell her album, sorry, she didn't tell her label about this album until a week before she released it. <laughs> How is that even possible? Like, how did she get copies of it made? I don't know. Or did even she know. maybe not even have copies of it made and she told them a week before and they were like, okay, because, like, how, how does that work? I have no idea. That isn't really, I, I don't know how any of that stuff works. <laughs> I feel like that that's just, that has to be a lie or something. <laughs> like, there's just no way. One of many. Hmm. <laughs> Let's add it to the tally. <laughs> In a Pitchfork article, I don't know who wrote for Pitchfork, but it said, Folklore will forever be known as Taylor Swift's quote-unquote indie album. A sweater weather record released on a whim in the blue heat of this lonely summer filled with cinematic love songs in search of a film soundtrack. That's so good. Perfectly put. Pitchfork's finally got something right for (laughs) once. I know, I almost didn't even put that in there, but I just thought what they said about the film... The film soundtrack, the cinematic love songs in search of a film soundtrack is really interesting, specifically because perfect transition into this next point that I wanted to make. There is a consistent film motif throughout this album. Mm-hmm. I think I've seen this film before. You knew the hero died, so what's the movie for? You know, the greatest films of all time were never made. Mm-hmm. This runs throughout probably because Taylor was watching so many movies and felt these parallels between her life and the characters that she was watching. But I feel like there's more to it also. Also, it's so funny how, like, because me, I'm an avid movie watcher, <laughs> if for those that don't know. And, and um, an actress. And a playwright. Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> but first and foremost, I'm a movie watcher because <laughs> I watch <laughs> movies, like, once a day almost. So I Follow Kyle totally, on Letterboxd. <laughs> I'm getting all my inspiration from movies. Movies are, like, hugely important to my life and my understanding of the world. And... If Taylor is a little busy, she not really have time to watch movies. <laughs> so, yeah, it makes sense that she finally gets to slow down and, like, maybe even consume art and, like, consume things that aren't just, you know, quick and quick and easy things that are, like, long-form movies. And that, I definitely think, has a huge part in why Folklore was so storytelling-wise. It was so good. It was so emotional. It was so... It felt like a movie. And... It felt as emotional as a movie. It felt like a soundtrack almost. And so I think her being able to watch movies and kind of appreciate them definitely informed this. And obviously we know that through her lyrics. She references movies a lot. The one screen in my (laughs) And the Peter losing Wendy. Like a lot of like movie and literary references in these songs too. So much of her her creation of her own art is inward. And this was a way for her to kind of look at other characters and relate to other mm-hmm. people's lives. And it wasn't just so in her own head, in her own experience. She's the main mm-hmm. character, which is why this album is so 
much more relatable than like Universal. lover. Yeah. Because it wasn't just about her singular experience. She was able to write about other people's experience and put her feelings into them. And so that's like just the perfect combination for her writing skills, especially at this point in her career where she's, you know, she had just written a diaristic album that felt like she's writing something diaristic, but she didn't really maybe want to be writing something diaristic. So she tried to lean heavily into it, but it it kind of pushed back against her a little bit. (laughs) It's funny to think that Death by Thousand Cuts, she said she wrote that after watching Someone Great. But that's just interesting because that's one of the best songs on the album. And mm-hmm. like objectively, like anyone would say that. And it's, she put it under the veil of it's, it's not about my life. It's about fictional characters. And whether that's true or not, I do think it's about her life. But it was definitely inspired by the movie, I think. And she was like, wow, watching a movie is so good. I really, really <laughs> like movies. <laughs> and that's kind of a stepping stone. That's one of the only points of reference to go from lover to folklore. I think that and it's nice to have a friend are like the, the only like threads you can pull to find a, find a step. <laughs> you know? I agree. So uh, motif number one is the film motif in folklore, but there's also heavy themes of escapism, romanticism, and nostalgia. And depression. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I mean, yeah, I feel like... Yes, yes, yeah. (laughs) How would you say that escapism, romanticism, nostalgia show up in the album and why it's different from her other albums in these ways Um, she leans more into complex feelings and not just about this one person or a breakup or a situation she leans into more abstract feelings and feelings that you can't always explain feelings that you don't even know why they're coming up and she goes back through all kinds of different memories some of them kind of feel even not even narrative and ties them to these different complicated feelings that she doesn't even really know how to explain. It's not like, this is the song about escapism. This is the song about romanticism. It's These threads are throughout the whole album. And that's why I love Hoax so much as a closer. Mm, I was about to say that. <laughs> you know, Hoax is my top three. It's one of my favorite Taylor songs ever. And Hoax is one of the only first songs she said she wrote and she didn't even know what she was writing it about. Even though I do think that that's... There's going to be that in a lot of songs that she's writing. Like, obviously, she'll have an idea of what she wants to write it about. But there's lyrics that I'm like, now, where did that come from? (laughs) You know, like, that feels a little out of place. And not in a bad way, but, like, in a good way. (laughs) And so, but Hoax has all these different feelings. And feelings that you don't understand. Feelings that you can't describe or explain. And that's why I clung to that song so much in that year because that was my most listened to song of the year which (laughs) says a lot about yeah mental state yep Yep. but i think everything that you just said is part of why i love midnight so much not really knowing why something's coming up but you're writing about it from this kind of objective i'm just observing my thoughts and feelings and i'm not necessarily trying to name them i'm not Mm -hmm. trying to place them on any just feeling them I'm just feeling them and I'm just getting them out in the form mm-hmm. of a song. Yeah, and I like that about Midnight's too. Mm-hmm. And if that song is not super clear. And all the better because then everyone can take it and whatever complex feelings that come up when they're listening to it are true and real. <laughs> but yeah, that's just, I, I feel like Midnight's is very much an album 
you can tell it was created after folklore. It's post folklore, yeah. Yes, the writing style of it is so different than her other pop albums. It's post folklore pop. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that should be its own genre. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> post folklore pop. <laughs> so those motifs we will talk about as we go track by track. Lastly, before we get into the track by track, let's touch on aesthetic of the album. Before seeing Betty on the Airs tour, Taylor often mentions the 1800s and Victorian nightgowns, but this album doesn't feel that far into the past for me. Well, it does and it doesn't, and that's part of the whole dichotomy of this album, and you can't really pin it down, because some things are sound... Well, honestly, Evermore has more of the like really old sounding st- stories and stuff like ivy sounds like it'd be really people always reference emily dickinson yeah i mean it obviously feels like she's going into the past with this album because she's not using any pop instruments she's not using synth well she's using a little synth but it's not it's a it's a return to something that's past but yeah because betty doesn't sound like anything from the 1800s absolutely she literally says like homeroom like <laughs> yeah skateboards vintage tea brand new phone like we're not yeah, in brand the 1800s new phones. i feel like <laughs> i i can see like 90s a little bit like like late 90s like her childhood it feels timeless it feels nostalgic but it doesn't necessarily feel nostalgic for any one time so like i get the 1800s of victorian nightgown just for the sense that it's like a callback to something else. And it's that escapism, wanting to go into the woods and live by yourself and kind of escape reality, escape mm-hmm. Modern day. Yeah, I do get it in that sense, but... Sometimes she just says things. <laughs> and I think that's something we need to discuss, make a point of. <laughs> yes, especially on tour. I feel like it's so funny, this tour, because she has such a wider audience. Like, we have always experienced Taylor on tour just talking just saying stuff just talking (laughs) you know you don't take it too literally also evermore it has similar like she literally says come back stronger than a 90s trend in the middle of willow which is a song that could be about like people and lived in the witch hunt (laughs) but it's like it's part of the whole like she is a millennial woman and millennial women you know that she can never she can never let go of that identity (laughs) and it's it's throughout even when she's doing an album that's supposed to feel like victorian era supposed to feel like pre-modern society and um she still references the mall (laughs) but in the internet (laughs) which i like i like it you can't place it because she does touch on different time periods and she she says conflicting things about what time period she's in what time period she's referencing but she's heavily involved in nature and heavily involved in escaping the online worlds that we are so invested in which feel makes it feel more timeless the lakes is interesting to talk about that because that's a whole song about like i am escaping modern life i'm escaping the internet no one around to tweet it (laughs) see she's not afraid to make really she's not trying to act like oh yeah this music is like I was taking on a character of someone who has lived in the Like, she's very much herself, and she's, like, referencing modern day because, like, 
it's not romantic to talk about Twitter in a song at all. (laughs) (laughs) Or the mall before the internet. Or, like, the 90s trend or any of that stuff. But she's kind of forcing it to be that way. Because she's like, I'm putting it in these beautiful songs. And it doesn't sound romantic. It doesn't sound poetic. But it's life. And it's realistic. And that's how... That's the the times we're living in. So I kind of like that she was unafraid to say things that might seem, like, might seem dated in the future, you know? Mm -hmm. And it's something, like... Something that I have always loved about Taylor's writing is that she never really dates herself in her lyrics, but she did kind of do that almost more so on this album than any other album, but it doesn't feel like putting the words with no one around to tweet it in a lyric might be like in most songs or other artists in another context, you might be like, oh God, that, why did you put that in there? And I do feel like that about the 90s trend lyric, but I feel like it works in all the, all other instances, in my opinion, because she says it with such conviction mm-hmm. and it's placed and it's worded and it's saying in almost like this theatrical kind of a cinematic way that it feels timeless and these things that she's using to date a lyric or to date an experience it almost feels referential rather than telling you what time period she's existed in. I like dated things personally. That's kind of an unpopular opinion, but I like when you watch a movie and you're like, this could have only been made in the spring of 2002. <laughs> you know? well, I, feel, I feel differently about it with music than I do with most other forms of art. I'm, s- I, I kind of feel it generally. I love albums. Like, Vanessa Hudgens' debut album could have only been made that year. And you know that when you're listening to it. And I love that about it. Like, it's the time you're living in and it's only going to happen once. And it's weird that people, like, always are so eager to look back on things and make fun of them when they're different. Because if it's a negative thing that you lived in a time period that doesn't exist anymore, I think that's an awesome thing. So I like that she's not afraid to make... Okay, it can be... It can go bad and you need to calm down and, like, songs like that because... That's what I was trying to say is the context is so important. And that's what I agree with with what you said is that you need to come down. I mean, it's just a bad song. So (laughs) if you're going to do – at the end of the day, it goes back to whether it's a good song or not. (laughs) And, yeah, you need to come down. It was the embarrassing type of way. It also feels – it felt really forced on you need to come down, whereas the lyrics on Folklore or Evermore that do date these songs, they feel like just – part of something else, part of the feeling, part of the stream of consciousness, part of this experience that inspired her. And maybe she was watching a movie and the the vintage tea brand new phone lyric, like let's say she was watching something and that's what inspired her to write Cardigan. In that film, there was no vintage tea brand new phone. But for her, that's part of what she related mm-hmm. that experience to for that fictional character. And mm-hmm. so those lines in folklore feel lived in, whereas in some of the stuff on Lover that on we're Lover. talking about, it feels like... It feels hollow. Yeah. Like it, like it's in there, but there's not really a reason that it's in there. Yeah. In a way, I'm going to look back on that and probably it's going to be a little endearing to me. <laughs> I'm just going to be honest. I like that she took such an artistic album. Folklore has so much artistic integrity and she put those things that will be dated references and very telling of the time period we're in and it kind of takes you out of it sometimes but it's just like part of the complexity of the album it has 
timelessness, but it also feels very, it's extremely in the moment because everyone was aware of like what was going on that produced the album. And so I like that part of it. This is so random, but what you just said made me think of Star Wars and how <laughs> like the prologue for Star Wars is a long time ago in a galaxy mm-hmm. far, far away. But they're mm-hmm. using all this technology that we don't even have in modern day. Mm-hmm. And it's like, it feels timeless. It feels like it could have existed in the past. And it feels like it it maybe should be in the future, really far in the future. But it's got this like far away because it's a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. It's like folklore mm-hmm. is in a forest far, far away. Mm-hmm. A long time ago, but you don't know. It could be happening right now. Super niche. <laughs> well, I'm going to continue on that because Star Wars feels so timeless. It could be it could be ancient history. It could be in the future. And it also feels very dated because when you watch the original trilogy, you're like, this is so 80s. Like mm-hmm. the, the way they film this, the technology they're using to make it look futuristic, it's so dated. It's so 80s. The prequels, so early 2000s. Mm-hmm. And so it that's why I love the prequels. That's why I love it so much is because you, you can relate to the characters. You can relate to these crazy fictional circumstances. You can relate to the grandiosity of the whole thing mm-hmm. and of the just wonder of it all. But you can also relate to the time period that you relate to. Like the 2000s, I remember what it was like when this movie came out and this art affected the world. And I know mm-hmm. why this art came from this time period. Like it's just all these good things. And that's that's what I mean when I'm talking about folklore and the, how it's kind of dated. Let's look at the folklore album cover and the album photo shoot and just kind of discuss. So what just let's just talk about the cover first. What did you think about the cover when you first saw it? And how do you feel about it now? It is beautiful. I love it personally. I really love I mean, the trees are gorgeous. I love big tall trees like that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think it's really good. I also love the kind of okay, well, I'm getting ahead of myself. What did you think? <laughs> I honestly have always loved the cover. Mm-hmm. I love the fact that she is so small in the trees mm-hmm. because I kind of feel like there is a bit of a metaphor there of she's she is not in the foreground of this album. She is not what it's about, but she's mm-hmm. immersed in it. And I also love that you can kind of see the texture of the ground that she's standing on and in the ground that's closer to the camera than she is. It just feels very time and place. Mm-hmm. And it's very anti-pop album cover. It's an artistic album cover, which when you look at like Lover, it's like a brand. It's like a package. This is this is the cover. This is the thing I'm selling to you. Yeah. And folklore is the opposite of that. It's Taylor Swift, which is the selling point of every album, is not even really present on the album. She's almost really... like incognito here. She just kind mm-hmm. of camouflages herself. She blends into the trees. Within the trees, yeah. Mm-hmm. So many, so many metaphors there. And the fog, the fog that's behind her, like, I don't know. And it just really looks like where Kaya and I grew up. It looks like yeah. the hills behind our house. I love it. And she's wearing uh, this like really long, I think it looked like linen or cotton dress. The big coat. This plaid overcoat. I love the coat. And her, her pose is interesting. I love her pose. She's, she's not looking at the of- camera. She's looking around. She's observing. Yeah, if you look at this album cover, it just takes you back 
Like when you first saw it, you're like, oh, wow, I'm about to get into something here, <laughs> you know. But now it's like I said, it's it's indicative of the time. It just it's one of the most of her albums and her album covers. I would say it's one of the most fitting album covers. It's an album cover that best reflects what the album is, what it means, the experience mm-hmm. and the time that the album came into the world. And it makes me emotional to look at. Like when I zoom in on her face, it's just like, oh. Like, I feel like I was standing there in that coat with her in the forest, you know? She was holding my hand and guiding me through the woods. Yeah. <laughs> and that will always be there. Like, things have changed a lot since then, but she will always be standing there in these woods. <laughs> and she said, please picture me in the trees. Let's look through the rest of the photo shoot. Do you have... Are you in that Twitter thread? Yeah. The fact that this is sandwiched between two of her worst album covers... <laughs> <laughs> That that's is the thing like well, sorry what i was i think i'm about to say exactly what you're about to say it was it's so confusing and upsetting yes. that the evermore album cover is what it is so bad when <laughs> i hate it <laughs> its sister album folklore is absolutely perfect in every way and that's what started the allegations that she hates evermore <laughs> because why would you give folklore this and then evermore that i almost even just feel like she had a clearer vision that's represented in the folklore mm-hmm. album photo shoot, whereas the Evermore Definitely. album photo shoot felt like, okay, let me go back outside and put on a coat this time. Mm-hmm. And but yeah, I love her outfits that she's wearing. That she has like a weird, like little, like preppy look sometimes with her outfits, like the little button ups and the little capri pants and stuff, mm-hmm. which is kind of like not what you'd expect, but it's very tailored because it's like what she used to, how she used to dress in like the red era and stuff. And she styled me. herself and did her own hair and makeup for this photo shoot, so you know that all of these decisions were hers. Yep. God, it's so oh, just takes me back just looking at these photos. I think she picked a perfect cover. A lot of the mm-hmm. alternative covers that she did, I think a lot of them also could have been good covers, but I think she chose the right one. I honestly love the alternate versions too. I love that she did. Like my version is the Meet Me, Meet Me Behind the Mall version mm-hmm. and it's the white vinyl and I love it dearly. And I feel like I wish she would stop doing that <laughs> because it's kind of seeming like just a marketing tactic at this point. And it probably was to begin with, but it almost makes the actual album cover feel less special because it's like, well, Mm -hmm. is this really the cover you chose? Or is this just like... It it takes away from the impact of an album cover whenever you undermine it with all these alternate versions. But this worked. I really like these alternate covers because they feel like they each tell a different story Mm -hmm. and they each have their own artistic interpretation. And it feels like you can kind of personalize it to what you want and what, because mm-hmm. it's about us sort of, you know, like the album, you listen to it and it becomes about your life. So I like this, but because they're all good mm-hmm. <laughs> and they all have their own story. And that's why I'm not mad at Midnight's because those covers were nice too. I liked them. It's so funny that she didn't do it with Lover. It's like, I would have liked some other options exactly. for that one. Exactly. <laughs> But I really like the back cover that she chose for Folklore too. She's just standing there and the jacket's kind of hanging off her shoulders. I love that. And I and because she put the track list too on the dark of that jacket. And so it's you can see it, you can read it really well. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't I just I think it works because it's closer. You're closer to her in the back cover than you are in the front cover. Mm-hmm. And that's where the track list is. I don't know. I like that. Like a little bit of intimacy. Yeah, it's really cool to whenever you see like the close-up shots of her in that original outfit that's on the cover because you're like, whoa. <laughs> like now I'm like in it, you know? Yeah. It's just, it's just such a good photo shoot. 
It really is perfect. You can tell that she had a vision after making the album that she really had a vision for what it needed to look like. Okay, so now we're going to talk about folklore kind of from bird's eye view. The teenage love triangle, Taylor on the Ares tour says that this is like something she's really proud of. She raves about the love triangle. I almost feel like the teenage love triangle is a red herring. A red herring is a logical fallacy in which irrelevant information is presented alongside relevant information, distracting attention from that relevant information. (laughs) And so to me, the fact that Betty Cardigan and August are the love triangle songs. Mm-hmm. It kind of, to me, takes off a little bit, takes some of the attention off of illicit affairs. <laughs> Narratively, that song is very similar to those three. Mm-hmm. Like, it really fits in. And she also sings the bridge of illicit affairs after she sings August on the Ares tour, which just mm-hmm. confirms, you know, I- I'm not trying to speculate on what that song is about because I-, I really don't care because it just means a lot to me personally. And so I don't care what it's about for Taylor but I do feel like maybe that one just felt more personal to her. And so maybe that's why she kind of did that. Or I don't know. I think I would just like to hear her talk more about the Teenage Love Triangle. and like I would like her to be honest about it. <laughs> we know that she wrote Cardigan first, just because of what Aaron Dessner has said. And the Cardigan line in Betty does feel like it makes sense that that came after Cardigan. And also like... This album came out, I was like, oh, did she just come out? (laughs) Like, because we didn't, I didn't really think about it literally about how she was writing from different people's perspectives, I guess. And so I was like, she's literally talking about like a girl. (laughs) Like, and so I was literally like, for a moment there, I was like, I think she just came out. And then obviously like, I was like, okay, well, she wouldn't do that. (laughs) But, and then she did the whole like, oh yeah, it's from a male perspective. Like, okay, whatever. Um, kind of annoying, but anyway, <laughs> that was, and that was also a time period where like, I had only just come out to you like that, that spring mm-hmm. and summer. So Same. like, I was very like, and like, this is why I don't really personally find a need to hate on Gaylers very much. I understand where they're coming from. When I was still like, it was still new for me. I was looking everywhere for like seeing myself in media mm-hmm. and seeing myself in other people. And so I was like, I mean, it would be so cool if she was. <laughs> I understand why it's people feel the need to like find representation and things like that in people who are already like widely loved and accepted like Taylor Swift. And so this ha- album has a very gay feeling to me, mm-hmm. <laughs> not because anything Taylor, but just mm-hmm. because my own experience listening to it was like, I was kind of understanding that. And I think that is how it was for a lot of people. I fully agree and relate to what you're saying. And I think mm-hmm. that we are not alone in that yeah. experience. But I don't no longer feel the need to connect it to Taylor at all because it's not about her. <laughs> yeah, because it never was. It was always about no. just your experience. Mm-hmm. That's where I feel like, because you said you don't feel the need to, I don't know, be annoyed with Gaylers or something. There's a difference between looking for queer stories mm-hmm. in the art that you consume Yeah. And reading into her personal life and being like invasive. So this is the letter that Taylor wrote with Folklore. It started with imagery, visuals that popped into my mind and piqued my curiosity. Stars drawn around scars, a cardigan that still bears the scent of loss 20 years later, battleships sinking into the ocean, down, down, down. The trees swing in the woods of my childhood. Hushed tones of, let's run away and never doing it. The sun drenched, the sun drenched month of August, sipped away like a bottle of wine, 
a mirrored disco ball hovering above a dance floor, a whiskey bottle beckoning, hands held through plastic, a single thread that, for better or for worse, ties you to your fate. <laughs> that is interesting. Let's talk yeah. about that in a second. Pretty soon, these images in my head grew faces or names and became characters. I found myself not only writing my own stories, but also writing about or from the perspective of people I've never met. People I've known or those I wish I hadn't. An exiled man walking the bluffs of a land that isn't his own, wondering how it all went so terribly, terribly wrong. An embittered tormentor showing up at the funeral of his fallen object of obsession. A 17-year-old standing on a porch learning to apologize. Love-struck kids wandering up and down the evergreen high line. My grandfather, Dean, landing at Guadalcanal in 1942. A misfit widow getting gleeful revenge on the town that cast her out. A tale that becomes folklore is one that is passed down and whispered around, sometimes even sung about. The lines between fantasy and reality blur, and the boundaries between truth and fiction become almost indiscernible. <laughs> Speculation, over time, becomes fact. Myths, ghosts, stories, and fables. Fairy tales and parables. Gossip and legend. Someone's secrets written in the sky for all to behold. In isolation, my imagination has run wild, and this album is the result. A collection of songs and stories that flowed like a stream of consciousness. Picking up a pen was my way of escaping into fantasy, history, and memory. I've told these stories to the best of my ability with all the love, wonder, and whimsy they deserve. Now it's up to you to pass them down. Hmm. Taylor. Yeah, it's not so fictional that people, I don't know why people act like it is, because she literally says, I'm blurring the line so much that you don't even know what's true and what's not. But it's all think, true I and it's all not. <laughs> because at, as she's talked about the album more, she's like, it's not real. It's not my life. Mm -hmm. But it is. Mm -hmm. It absolutely is. And the fact that every example she uses about some fictional story is actually true for her. <laughs> like, what do you mean? These are fictional stories. I wonder if any of it is even fictional. <laughs> she probably just changed <laughs> some of the names and stuff. <laughs> Literally all of those things are like exaggerations of things that are actually happening to her. Like, please, a misfit widow getting gleeful revenge in the town that cast her out. Taylor. <laughs> Are you the Elizabeth Widow on question? <laughs> a single thread that, for better or for worse, ties you to your fate. Mm -hmm. For better or for worse. Yeah, she's dealing with some interesting thoughts here. <laughs> oh, an embittered tormentor showing up at the funeral of his fallen object of obsession mm -hmm. is quite interesting. No, we know that's My Cheers Ricochet, and we know what that song's really about. Uh, something that you touched on is the Safe and Sound album that we always wanted. Mm -hmm. Tape and Sound was my all-time favorite Taylor song since it came out, and it has not wavered. So it felt very personal to me for her to put out an album that had very similar feelings. Appalachian, the Appalachian thing was very present in Tape and Sound, obviously, because The Hunger Games takes place in Appalachia. Um, at least Katniss area does, <laughs> District 12. Mm -hmm. And um, so, yeah, Safe and Sound is totally Appalachian folk song. Let's say that after Taylor wrote Safe and Sound, she was really inspired and was like, I want to make an album with the Civil Wars. <sighs> Imagine what that would have sounded like. <sighs> I need it. I need it. This is actually, I actually have this uh, written down here to touch on next. So I might have said this in a, a random episode somewhere, but I was listening to a podcast that Aaron Dessner was on and he was talking about how right before the pandemic happened, he and his band, The National, had kind of dispersed a little bit. They had all kind of decided to do their own things. They didn't know if or when they would make another album together. And so Aaron had kind of 
had just been making music by himself and Bonnie Iver asked him, I want you to open up for me on my next tour, this tour that I'm about to embark on. This was right before COVID. Mm -hmm. And Aaron was like, well, what am I going to play? And so he (laughs) got really inspired with this, like, okay, I'm about to open up for my friend on his tour by myself. I've never done that before. And that really inspired Aaron to write. And so a lot of the tracks that he sent Taylor that she wrote to that ended up being on the album were the, as Aaron calls them, the sketches that he had Mm -hmm. been working on for his solo project. And I don't give credit to her male collaborators like ever because they don't deserve it. But Aaron Nessner deserves full credit for this album Mm -hmm. because it's alternative because of Aaron Dessner. Taylor does not write alternative music. And her mind is a pop mind. (laughs) She Mm -hmm. has a mind for pop music. And that's something that I've always had to kind of contend with because I'm a, I've been a huge Swifty my whole life, but I naturally love alternative music more than pop music. So there will always be that a bit of a disconnect there. And that's why this album, I was like, oh my God, it's my it's the album of my life because it's alternative music and Taylor Swift's songwriting. So we have to we have to give a round of applause for Aaron Dessner for that. I love that man so much. He is such a... I think he works really well with Taylor because I think he's a creative genius in his own right production wise and how he can build a song for him i don't actually know how much lyrical songwriting he does anytime i've heard him talk about it he he tends to talk more about writing music and composing a track and so i feel like he just works so perfectly with taylor because it's like she's a songwriting genius and not to say that she can't write melody and she can't compose but she's a songwriting genius and that's Mm -hmm. really her number one strongest skill when it comes to making music. It's such a good combination. And it kind of just fits with Aaron because he's the parallel of that mm-hmm. or the inverse of that. Mm-hmm. I would just love for them to make an album and kind of push themselves to do something different because for Aaron, you know, that sparse production is kind of what he naturally leans toward. And so I would love for him to challenge himself to write something bigger kind of like would have, could have, should have, but really like lean further into it and for Taylor to have to match that. Yeah, and I haven't listened to all the Nashville's albums. I've listened to a few, so I can't say that he's never done that. And and that's another thing, too, because like, I don't want her to continue to use the same producers. I love Aaron, and he's a great songwriter, but um, but yeah. I think she just, she does great work when she's challenged, and mm-hmm, she's a exactly. little bit out of her comfort zone, mm-hmm. but she feels safe, you know? I think Aaron to, really made herself yeah. feel safe to write and create and tell stories that she needed to tell. And looking at those texts between them, whenever they, she was sending like the lyrics, she was like, oh my God, this is amazing. Like you could tell that that was a spark that was lit in her mm-hmm. that was basically died out. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I think she had that with Nathan Chapman. I think he felt mm-hmm. like a dream producer for her for those mm-hmm. first three albums. I think she felt challenged by Max Martin and Jan Shellback in that way too. Yeah, she did. And I think... I, I don't know. We'll talk about her relationship with Jack and her songwriting with Jack. I don't dislike Jack's production at all, so I don't want anyone to get that impression because I do love him and I think that they've made some amazing stuff together. But I feel like their close friendship, it almost, I, like, I don't know if he challenges her enough in the way that she needs to be challenged no. when she's writing. So that's all I'll say on that. <laughs> and we're back. <laughs> and it's time for Minakaya's Superpower track by track oh yes i love a track by track i die for a track by track 
God, just hearing those opening notes just takes me back. Okay, so before we talk about the one and before we get into each track by track, pull up your little note, Kaya, of our this first will time be interesting because to I was literally just keyboard like smashing on all my letters in my phone and just like saying anything. It's it's a lot of nothing. It's a lot of whole lot of nothing here. <laughs> I didn't even write anything for Epiphany through the lakes. Well, we Wait, what, is it, lakes, what does it say? But... Um, created July 23rd, 2020 at 11.23 p.m. Same? Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> wow, what a moment, a moment. <laughs> so like we said previously, Folklore is the first album that you and I had listened to together since 1989. This was a really cool experience for us because we hadn't been able to listen to a Taylor album together. I had just graduated college and I was able to drive back and be with Kaya, and we got to listen to this album together. We will put some pictures. I think we took some pictures because we went into Kaya's room. We turned on our little mood lighting. We laid on her bed, mm-hmm. and we just listened and we processed. And also, that was right before our mom sold our childhood home and we moved out of it. So it was like one of the last memories that we have there. And like mm-hmm. we said, this album feels very homey for us. So. And then we did our little nature walk in the woods the next day. Yeah, it was awesome. And played it. Mm-hmm. Played it on a walk behind our house through yep. the Appalachian Mountains. The walk we hadn't done since we were kids. So the one, what I have written down here in all caps, oh my fucking god, best song ever. And then Harry. <laughs> I probably just thought it was like, it just reminded me of Harry. Yeah, it definitely does feel a uh, Haler coded. <laughs> But you can find those anywhere if you're looking hard enough, and I was. <laughs> Here's the thing, too, is that any any time that we assign anything about Taylor's life to these songs, folk for folklore specifically, that's just our interpretation. That's not to say that that's... Yeah. Because we, we have no idea what really inspired specifically for folklore any of these songs. So mm-hmm. I wrote for the one, track one, I wrote in all caps with multiple typos, best song ever, oh my god, Best films never made? What? We both wrote best song ever. <laughs> I remember because I remember Kaya turning that on and looking at you and being like, This is the best song I've ever heard. This is the best Taylor Swift song I've ever heard. Yeah, it's crazy because this is not even my favorite song on the album. So this is crazy that just the fact that, like, why was she holding back? Why was she not doing this when she could have been doing this? Yeah, this song is amazing. It has it's a great opener. It just eases you into the woods. I love the lyrics. I love the the violin is used so beautifully in this song. The oh, it has such a bittersweet sound to it. It's not boring in any way. It's not safe or it's not. It's just it's just a damn good song. So like we said previously, you know, it's updating your former lover on how you're doing now. And you're kind of trying to uh, fluff up how you're doing or inflate how you are. Because there is a bit of longing and reminiscing on something good that was lost in the Mm -hmm. song. So she says, I'm doing good. I'm on some new shit. Been saying yes instead of no. I thought I saw you at the bus stop. I didn't though, which is one of my favorite lines. (laughs) And it's so funny because I, when is the last time Taylor Swift was at a bus stop? Probably never in her life. No, no, never. This is the area where it's fictional because she (laughs) she doesn't do normal human being things. Um, I didn't though. I love that. It's such a casual conversational Mm. lyric and I Mm -hmm. love it so much. 
it, yes, conversational is perfect because it literally sounds like something you would say. Let's say you just ran into your former lover and you're like, yeah, I've been doing good. You know, I'm, I'm saying yes instead of no these days. I saw, I thought I saw you at the bus stop. I, I mean, it, it, I didn't. It wasn't you, but I thought I saw yeah. you the other day. <laughs> Such like a, she's, it's, oh. <laughs> it's so good. She, she captures that like. The line between wanting to save face and having all these deep underlying emotions that you can't really express because it makes you seem crazy. And she does express them, just just you wait, but she's easing you into it. <laughs> I loved hearing for the first time. I hit the ground running each night. I hit the Sunday matinee. For one, because we couldn't go to a Sunday matinee at this time. So it was kind of nice to imagine her in this kind of like ghostly mm-hmm. frozen world where Taylor Swift is still going to the movies on a Sunday. Also, it was just nice to think about a time when you could. <laughs> it feels, it's a very mature song too. Mm-hmm. Like you can tell there's been a lot of growth and these people are different and they're not as, you know, young and stupid <laughs> as they once were. Um, you know, the greatest films of all time are never made. And that line comes from I Hit the Sunday Matinee. So it's like, she's living her life. She's going about her daily life, but she's being reminded of of what she lost and she's being reminded of this relationship and she's very contemplative and like i love that i just love the idea that she's she's seen art and she's seen these profound tragedies and these you know romance and all these little things throughout her day i'm on genius right now and it says that seeing someone's face in a crowd on the bus stop lyric seeing someone's face in a crowd is often a sign that you're thinking about that person enough to imagine Mm -hmm. them where they aren't she first mentioned this idea in holy ground sometimes i wonder how you think about it now and i see your face in every mm-hmm. crowd and then she described it again on i don't want to live forever i see you around in all these empty places and then there's, this is very interesting it also says there's a sharp contrast from i forgot that you existed the opener on lover <laughs> on i forgot that you existed swift insists that she's moving on from a bad situation and started the album on a positive note while the one sets a more melancholy reflective tone Yep. And it's like, we're back. We're so back. That's what I thought when listening to this. Because like, uh, I don't relate to Lover. Like every song is so, not every song, but so many songs are just bland and like one note and oh, this is about me being so moving on and blah, blah, blah. It's like, no one relates to that. No one relates to that. And you know, even worse, no one wants to listen to this because it doesn't sound good. <laughs> and so this is the absolute inverse of that song as an opener. That's that's awesome. I didn't really think about that. It's so funny on Genius, when I hit the Sunday matinee, greatest films of all time were never made lyric, it says these lines begin the film motif that appears throughout the rest of the mm-hmm. album. <gasps> yep. She that. starts that. <laughs> she starts that early on. Because it's so very smart. prominent. <laughs> it is. It is. So then she goes into the pre-chorus. I guess you never know, never know. And if you wanted me, you really should have showed. And this lyric and if you never bleed, you're never going to grow. And it's all right now. Mm-hmm. This, I love the dismissal of it at the end. This pre-chorus is, I don't know, maybe one of my favorite Taylor pre-choruses. And I, it's so funny because I feel like if you track all the times in the podcast or just like in our conversations, Kaya, that I say like, this is one of my favorite, whatever. It's like, well, would mm-hmm. it really be my favorite? But <laughs> this is one of my favorite pre-choruses, especially coming at this point in her discography. I don't know. It just has a lot of impact. The, I guess you never know because you don't. And so much of her music was trying <laughs> to, so much of her music and her songwriting and the way that she approaches relationships. She put herself in a box. Yeah. Is to be like, well, love is a ruthless game unless you play it good and right. If you wanted me, you really should have showed. It was actually pretty simple. And if you never bleed, you're never going to grow and it's all right now. And it's like, there is growth that comes from having a hard time. 
And this pre-chorus is so genius because she's saying, first of all, you never really know. Second of all, if you want to meet, you would have showed. Like if it was open, if it was out in the open, it would have been out in the open and -hmm. it's all in my head. Third, I mean, it was for the best, you know, we all grew from it. And fourth, it's all right. I'm happy. You're happy. We're moving on. We're moving on. And then the chorus comes, but... And here now, I'm now after all these prefaces, I'm going to indulge in this. Yes, this that self-indulgent uh, digging up the grave another time that she loves to do, and that we all love to do, and that it's totally healthy to do. She's letting herself go down that road. But we were something, don't you think so? Roaring twenties, tossing pennies in the pool, and if my wishes came true, it would have been you. That is such a bomb line. And I love, I love, love, love this line. This is one of my favorite lines in the song. In my defense, I have none. In my defense, I have have none. (laughs) Yeah. The brazen unabashedness of that line, I just love. For never leaving well enough alone. And it's so funny that she has this lyric in this song because that uh, phrase comes up on Lover in Me He He. And she says, I never leave well enough alone. And we were something, don't you think? So I can finally relate to her again. (laughs) (laughs) Uh. She just is just an opener that's just prepares you for what this is, this experience is. Verse two, I have this dream you're doing cool shit, having adventures on your own. You meet some woman on the internet and take her home. We never painted by the numbers, baby, but we were making it count. You know, the greatest loves of all time are over now. I love that she uses the same idea of this kind of lyric in two different ways. The greatest films of all time were never made and the greatest loves of all time are over now. That's such a negative view on things. And I love it because it's so relatable. Like, Lover Taylor would never have said this. Would never have said the greatest loves of all time are over now. So it's not the one I'm in. <laughs> it's something else that I wish I was in. <laughs> but it's so funny because it, it goes against this view of love that so many people have and uphold, which is that a relationship or a love that you have with someone is only valuable while you're if in it, it lasts and mm-hmm. if it doesn't last then it was never as valuable as you it wasn't thought meant it was. to be or yeah and that's not true it's like the mm-hmm. same way that some of the greatest films of all time were never made mm-hmm. just because something didn't turn out the way you expected it to or because your idea of it wasn't what it ended up being that doesn't mean that it mm-hmm. wasn't great i think i have written mm-hmm. some of the best songs ever but no one's ever heard them so mm-hmm. that doesn't mean that they're not good yeah, and plus, it, like, put, people put value on things that are in your face and that are out there. And you can only have things out there if you're in the position to put them out there. Mm-hmm. So it's such a limited worldview to look at things that way. The greatest films of all time are the ones that are revered as the greatest films of all time. No, the greatest films of all time is probably something that a little kid came up with in his head one day when he's playing outside, and then he probably forgot about it the next day. Like, <laughs> <laughs> and that's this, what sets the tone for this whole album. And so the pre-chorus after that second verse is a shortened version which i really love because i love the way it just like mm-hmm. pushes you mm-hmm. she just she's not she's not she's done with the with the you know prefacing she's like she's i'm just in, in the self-indulgent now. <laughs> yeah now she's like i guess you never know never know but no 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 i'm alone <laughs> yeah and it's another day waking up alone it's yeah i mean if you think about i'm doing good i'm on some new shit and it's another day waking up alone it's mm-hmm. it's all about your perception, how you're perceiving your experience. Like you're waking up alone, you're hitting a Sunday matinee, having these uh, revelations about your life. And there's two sides of every coin. Yeah. Two things can be true at the same time. You can mm-hmm. be on some new shit, hit the ground running each night, but still 
you can have days where you feel like you are just waking up alone. And I love that they just coexist together in the song. Okay, the bridge. Persist and resist the temptation to ask you if one thing had been different, would everything be different? I love the meandering approach to this bridge that, oh. She says I three times for some reason and then persists and resists. It's just like, it's just got a good flow to it. She calls out. She calls attention to that push and pull. Mm-hmm. I persist and resist the temptation to ask you. If one thing had been different, would everything be different today? What I was trying to say here is the the one, you are the one. But here she kind of kind of uses that same line, but in a different way. If one thing had been different, would you have been the one? And one little thing could change everything. That's what's so cool about it is it's not so clear and cut and cut and dry as she tried to make it seem like a lover. Like, no, she she could not even be with this guy if one thing had been different. <laughs> and maybe she wanted one thing to be different. <laughs> I love the that plucking guitar in this song. It's so good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Track two, Cardigan. Uh, this song. Okay, this song is in my top three. I'll let you, I'll let you take this away. My top three has not changed since the album came out. My top three has been, in no particular order, Cardigan, Seven, and Hoax. Those are my songs. As far as the love triangle goes, I don't really care because this song is about me. (laughs) This song was written for me, and I don't care about Betty or any of them. (laughs) It's one of her best songs she's ever written. I think that's pretty indisputable because it's... It's, it's the single she chose for this album, and it's it's actually good. <laughs> She's been choosing so many bad singles until this. And this is like the ultimate Taylor Swift single, in my opinion, because it's not a pop single. I mean, you can go through all the great pop singles that she's released, but this is just such an essential Taylor Swift song. It has her classic brand of songwriting, but it has this alternative sound that's just so good and it just it just basically rings out all the emotion from you that you can and it's so nostalgic and it's very um for women in a way that i can't really explain <laughs> let's go through the lyrics and I'll, I'll get to it so she starts off vintage tea brand new phone high heels on cobblestones when you are young they assume you know nothing and this lyric gets pulled and reused throughout the song mm-hmm. it's kind of the tethering Mm-hmm. It's thesis. the theme of the song. It's the kind of yeah. the thesis statement. Mm-hmm. When you are young, they assume you know nothing. So in my perspective, this song to me is about how teenage girls are so intelligent and they are basically the center of the universe <laughs> <laughs> and they know it and they know everything. But at the same time, there's also like a need for connection. And it's so many times like you see the girl, like especially in high school, the girl who's dating this loser and just like, ugh, why? But it's also, it comes to defense of that girl because it's like she just, she has such an emotional intelligence mm-hmm. that she can, she probably is in love with this guy and it is very real for her. It just has so much empathy for the the young girl experience. And it, But it's also like at the end of the day, it's about her more than it's even about any guy that she's with because she's the genius. She's this. Oh, okay. Let's let's go through the lyrics. (laughs) Sequence smile, black lipstick, sensual politics. When you are young, they assume you know nothing. But I knew you dancing in your Levi's drunk under a streetlight. I knew you hand under my sweatshirt. Baby kiss it better. And it's a very sensual song too. Mm -hmm. And then this is, uh, according to Genius, a refrain. And when I felt like I was an old cardigan under someone's bed, you put me on and said I was your favorite. Oh my god. Now, let's talk really quickly about 
the idiom of put me on. So this has a mm-hmm. double meaning. So she's saying like literally you put me on. I was an old cardigan. And apparently there is a literal cardigan that gets brought up in Betty. When she says you put me on and I was your favorite. To put someone on is to kind of, it's it's kind of hard to explain. Um, I also want to talk give... about how she's, oh sorry. Okay. I was going to do that while you were looking at <laughs> You keep, go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> As she said, when you're young, they assume you're nothing. And then the switch to, but I knew you. So it's like the emotional intelligence goes back to that. They all think you know nothing, but no, I knew you. <laughs> That's such a good little twist. I also feel like the old cardigan thing, you said she mentions a cardigan in the other song because it's not just a throwaway metaphor. Like it's a very important signifier in this, in the history, in her memories and in her relationship with this person. So to put someone on is... I had an I have an understanding of the song, but it's kind of hard or not that song, but that phrase, but it's kind of hard to describe it because it's just like such a deep thing in my brain. Put on is to make someone or something better. To represent someone or something that puts this person in a positive light. Putting you on is kind of hyping you up and making you feel like the shit. Did you see what Genius says? It says it could also be a lie. <laughs> Misleading someone. Yeah. I feel like that's not a phrase that's used a lot anymore, or at least it's not as widely understood, but it's something that I heard and knew a lot as a kid. Like when I hear that phrase, I think of someone trying to get out of something or trying to deflect off of themselves and uh, putting the attention on this other person rather than Mm. let themselves have the negative attention. And so they just give positive attention to somebody else. Mm. I hadn't really thought about it that way. I literally just think of it metaphorically. Like... I'm a cardigan and I've been collecting dust under someone's bed. No one no one chooses me. No one sees me. You chose me and said I was your favorite. It's not just that you chose me and that you are okay with, you know, putting me on whatever, wearing me, having me by your side. You actually said I was your favorite after someone that had been just left in the dust and tattered. To be something that's so forgotten and not cared for and never chosen to be someone's favorite is is very i mean that's gonna work (laughs) which is why this idiom works in both meanings because if this person that benny is singing to put her on and said she was their favorite like what you said like if they felt like they had been just left under a bed and collected dust and tattered or whatever it's like when this other person like james had gone on with this other girl but mm-hmm. you put me on and said I was your favorite. Like mm-hmm. I slept next to her, but dreamed of you all summer long. <laughs> and you're putting yeah. her on. It's like you are actually the one that I have been thinking of. Like Betty, you are my everything. And so it's... it works in both ways, which is why it's one of my favorite lyrics. But I feel like uh, it kind of gets missed in this way of like putting someone yeah. on. She's not naive at all. Like she's aware of what's going on. She's aware of why it worked on her, why she has mm-hmm. emotional ties to this person. It's not a necessarily good relationship and she knows that. But she's she's letting herself revel in the romanticism of it and the fact that it was just good for her to experience and she already was above it in a way like she had already moved she was already bigger than their relationship but she let herself indulge in it which okay so continuing verse two is really short and i don't feel like i have ever fathomed that before but i always thought that verse two was like a post chorus i never even realized that it was a verse it's so crazy when you actually look at the breakdown of the lyrics and kind of how they're categorized because yeah a friend to all is a friend to none 
chase two girls. It sounds so nice. Lose the one. When you are young, they assume you know nothing. God, and I love so that. Good. Chase two girls, lose the one. Lose the and I one. love that this comes directly after the one. So th- mm-hmm. that's not lost on anybody. You know, no. we just heard I don't that care song. about the stupid love triangle. Like the songs are related. <laughs> you chase two girls, you're going to lose me. You're going to lose the one that really matters. And then we go into the next chorus. And this is different than the first chorus. But I knew you playing hide and seek and giving me your weekends. I knew you, your heartbeat on the high line once in 20 lifetimes. Once in 20 lifetimes. That's so much more than once in a lifetime. <laughs> so much rarer. <laughs> Let's see. The genius annotation on plain hide-and-seek says, hide-and-seek refers to the two-timing nature of secret relationships, suggesting Betty already knew something was wrong before being told. It could also refer to James playing hard to get by ignoring her all week and then giving her his undivided attention on the weekends. It's playing games. It suggests the youthfulness of their relationship and the time period when it was happening. Mm-hmm. But it's also more literal, like, hide-and-seek. Like, we were never just out in the open together and just, you know, a straightforward relationship. It was always hiding and there were secrets and things like that. It gives me, and I don't say this to connect this song to be about who these other songs are about, but it gives me style, uh, wonderland, um, I know places, energy. That's what I get from these lines. And I don't think I've ever really thought about that before until right now. I just feel like the nature, the nature of the relationship as she's describing it here feels similar to the nature of the relationship that she sings about in those songs. The bridge. To kiss in cars and downtown bars was all we needed. You drew stars around my scars, but now I'm bleeding. And then she goes beautiful imagery. into another chorus that is longer than all of the other choruses we've gotten so far. And says, because I knew you, stepping on the last train, marked me like offensive. a blood stain. <laughs> I knew you, tried to change the ending, Peter losing Wendy, I knew you, leaving like a father, running like water. And when you are young, they assume you know nothing. So let's start with stepping on the last train. That's a beautiful image of someone. They've waited to the very, very last second, you know, but they left. (laughs) And then marked me like a bloodstain. I love when she uses kind of like leans into maybe like a darker, maybe a little more gory imagery. It's very impactful. Tried to change the ending. Peter losing Wendy. I love that whole Peter Pan. I love the Peter Pan story. It's one of my favorite stories. Oh, it's so good because <laughs> first of all, it's nostalgic. It's an old, oh shit, my headphones. Peter is still a child, never grows up, very kind of immature. He In the beginning of the relationship, he acts like he knows more than her and he's going to teach her about the world. But Wendy, like a, she's a child, but at the same time, almost like a mother figure to these boys in the Neverland because she actually is the wise one. She actually knows how the world works. She gets to experience kind of a freedom that she doesn't experience in her normal life because she's constantly like taking care of her brothers and like all the little kids. And she has to be a girl. And you know, girls don't get to have the freedom that boys do. So it's such a genius lyric because that's, this whole song is an encapsulation of a relationship that mirrors Peter and Wendy and like that sort of dynamic. It's just, oh my God, I could, I could, I could go on and on about it. But also um, Haley Williams in one of her solo songs, she has a lyric that says love is not a wendy mora mother which is wendy's last name it's like saying that it's it's kind of like up for interpretation but my interpretation is that like you that's not really like the ideal love that you want you don't want to be the 
more mature one. You don't want to be the mother figure for your partner because that's just not, it's not fair to you. And um, so many, so often women are, have that role in relationships. Oh, it's just, it's another Haley and Taylor connection, but <laughs> yeah, that's just such a genius lyric. The genius annotation on that line says that in the classic 1904 tale, Peter Pan invites Wendy to visit Neverland with him where time moves slowly. Peter, which is how it can feel when you're like falling in love as a teenager, like time just stretches out. And also your childhood feels like it's in slow motion. Peter wants Wendy to stay forever and be his quote unquote mother, but she eventually leaves behind the fantasy of Neverland in childhood and returns to her real life where she moves on and grows up. The Peter Pan reference further illustrates the distance between youthful romance and the kind of love that lasts into old age. God, it's so good. It's one of my favorite references that she makes in all her songs. And there's so many reflecting on childhood lyrics in this album too, and that's a perfect connection. Which is kind of what the leaving like a father running like water line does too. When I heard that, I was like, what? Who gave you the right? How could you have the audacity to put something like this in the song? I was not expecting a lyric like that. And then to immediately follow that with, and when you are young, they assume you know nothing. It's like she's she's doing all this just universal truth and like this just, just so poignant thoughts. And she's like, yeah, but I was young, so I knew nothing, right? It's like, no, she knew all of this even then. And then we have verse three. Where she says, but I knew you'd linger like a tattoo kiss. I knew you'd haunt all of my what ifs. The smell of smoke would hang around this long because I knew everything when I was young. I knew I'd curse you for the longest time, chasing shadows in the grocery line. I knew you'd miss me once the thrill expired and you'd be standing in my front porch light, which calls to the Betty lyrics. And I knew you'd come back to me. And then her last refrain and why I felt like I was an old cardigan under someone's bed. You put me on and said I was your favorite. This is just so... This It's just like hit after hit after hit. Also in the Genius Annotation, it says in Disney's Peter Pan, Wendy says, Peter Pan, oh Peter, I knew you'd come back. So good. Wow. Yeah, she basically just going through how she knew all of this. She knew what it was in the beginning. She knew how it would end. She knew it would hurt. She knew she could also... She knew it would haunt her for the rest of her life. And it's so young to know that. The chasing shadows in the grocery line is one of my personal favorite lyrics. And I feel like it also really calls back to the one where she says, I thought I saw you at the bus stop. I didn't though. It's very like mundane That chasing life. shadows in the grocery line. Yeah, when you're kind of haunted by something. Oh, apparently chasing shadows is a British phrase used to describe someone looking for something that doesn't exist or trying to achieve something that is impossible. And that I knew you'd miss me once it's such a such a good thing such a good lyric because like and it's still it's not even like in a pouting way or anything it's not anything negative about the the girl that he cheated with it's not even it's just i know that that's how these things work and i know that that's human behavior and you're so young you don't even understand why you're doing the things you're doing and you don't even understand what it's going to add up to but i do (laughs) so good and she also has such a great awareness of how women are viewed and how girls are treated it's kind of like the Madonna horror complex, and that's very present in the whole love triangle thing, because August is like, I, you were never mine. I was never the wife. I was never the girlfriend. I was just the fling that you used. And they both have such deep emotional experiences with this, but they come from opposite ends of that dichotomy. And I just need to say that hearing Taylor sing about being a teenager, slipping hands under sweatshirts mm-hmm. is I don't know what it is about that lyric that I love, but it's like she wasn't able to be that honest about her sexuality at 
as a teenager in her music. And so I liked kind of getting to retroactively hear her sing about teenage experiences like that. And she totally had the purity kind of complex, which was placed on her. And I totally understand. But um, in this song, she gets to be like, no, I'm not just the girl who's holding hands and like waiting for you. And like, I'm the good girl that you're going to miss or whatever. And it's just, it's such a more mature take on, you know, girlhood and young love and all those things. I love the imagery of you be standing in my front porch light. That's so good. And the way she sings this, you come back to me. It's just beautiful. So wistful. And I love how it ends on that refrain once again, Mm -hmm. because that's the most important part of the song. So that is the end of part one of our folklore album breakdown. Join us again for part two, which will be out very, very shortly following this episode. Anything to add, Kaya? Yes, yes. um, Yes, do that. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for listening, and we will talk to you in the next episode. Bye. Bye.